When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. With the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome back to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Dan Bennett, the editor of BBC Science Focus magazine. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest, Professor Stephanie Strathley. In 2015, Professor Strathley's husband was infected by a superbug that was resistant to every antibiotic that doctors could throw at it. But she was able to save his life with an experimental treatment made of viruses found in sewage. It's a fantastic story, and I'll let her tell it. I think let's start at the very beginning then. So over, I think it was over five years ago, you were uh, working in HIV research, is that right? And then you went and had what uh, appeared to be a very normal holiday in Egypt, um, perhaps at a weird time, but but it all started there in Egypt, is that right? Yeah, that's right. My husband and I are both AIDS researchers at the University of California, San Diego, And we went on holiday to Egypt. My husband had always wanted to see the Valley of the Kings and King Tut's tomb. And uh, over what was Thanksgiving um, in the United States um, in 2015, we took this wonderful trip. Uh, There had just been a terrorist attack in Sharm el-Sheikh, so everybody else canceled uh, except us. My husband said, oh, it's the (laughs) perfect time to go. There'll be nobody on the ship. And he was right. We were the only (laughs) ones there. And so... That was where this all started. So it was some some at some point during the trip that um, Tom picked up this infection. That's right. And in fact, it was our our last night there. We had this wonderful meal on top of the 
top tier of this cruise ship, and we thought we were going to see King Tut's tomb the very next day. And my husband, all of a sudden, you know, a couple hours after this meal, he got very ill, and he was vomiting and just feeling miserable. And I just thought, well, you know, there was seafood in the meal. I figured he um, got food poisoning, and um, I really didn't think anything of it until the next day when he wasn't getting any better. Hmm. And so what, what, what happened next? Well, I mean, he couldn't keep anything down and not even water. I realized he was getting dehydrated. Now, I'm not a medical doctor, but I do have a rusty old degree in microbiology. And I was literally calculating incubation periods in my head for different organisms (laughs) that he could have acquired. Um, And uh, when he started complaining of back pain, I realized, you know what? This isn't food poisoning if he's got back pain. So I called a a friend of ours who happened to be the head of infectious diseases um, in the department we work in back home, and his name is Dr. Chip Schooley. He played an essential role in in Tom's um, recovery many months later. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, at that time, he said, you know, get him to the nearest hospital. He's, um, you know, he's really at risk of something serious here. And, um, but there was no hospital in Luxor where we were based. Really? So, so where did you? What did you have to do to get him to to treatment? Well, there was a clinic, and um, it was staffed with you know wonderful uh, Egyptian doctors, um, and they did their best with what limited resources they had. They did diagnose pancreatitis, which which is an inflammation of the pancreas. But they said, look, um, there's likely to be some serious complications here that are going to be above what we can handle. So they helped us get a medevaced uh, first to Germany and then finally right. back to San Diego. So so when did you know that this was a, an infection you were dealing with? And when did you, can you just tell me that story of how you found out that this was um, a sort of superbug that, that he'd uh, caught? Well, at first we we thought, okay, pancreatitis, infl- inflammation of the pancreas. Um, the doctors in Germany um, found that there was a gallstone that had stuck in his bile duct and it caused an obstruction and led to this giant abscess the size of a small football in his abdomen. Wow. And, you know, I, I was pretty shocked. Um, the doctor showed me this flask of putrid fluid and he said, oh. you know... Uh, there's something growing inside this abscess and it's been there for a little while. Um, if this abscess had just formed, this fluid would be clear. So I, I still wasn't that worried. I was thinking, okay, so, you know, they're going to culture whatever was growing in this abscess and they're going to give him some antibiotics, right? He'll be right as rain in a couple of you know days yeah, or I mean, something. Modern medicine's pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> well, that's what I thought. But, um, he came back, the doctor, in a couple of days, and by this time he was fully gowned and gloved and had a mask on that covered more of his face than the Egyptians in, in Luxor. And he stood away from the bed and he said, I've got some very bad news. This is the worst bacteria on the planet. Jeez. So what was it? Well, the the official name is Acinetobacter bomanii. Now, um, he said this in a thick German accent. I had to get him to write it down. (laughs) And I thought, oh my goodness, this rang a a slight bell uh, back from, you know, my 1980s uh, 
microbiology degree at the University of Toronto. And I realized that we used to plate this organism on our Petri dishes back then. And all we needed was, you know, a lab coat and gloves. And he said, this is the worst bacteria on the planet. Like, how can this be? And and, and me, I, I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist. This was catching me really off guard. So it did a little bit of sleuthing. And I realized that this organism has become a, a superbug of immense um, international importance. It's something of a bacterial kleptomaniac. It's really good at stealing antibiotic resistance genes from other bacteria. And so when we were treating Tom with some very heavy-duty antibiotics that I I call gorilla cillins, um, <laughs> they were only used intravenously, that was killing off all the friendly bacteria in his microbiome and creating space for this superbug to move in. Its nickname is actually Arachobacter because so many veterans were coming back from the Middle East with this organism in the early 2000s. Um, it, it used the military evacuation system to populate itself in all these regional hospitals in Western Europe and the United States. So unfortunately, you know, a hospital or a clinic is the most common place you acquire this organism these days. Right. So, so active soldiers on active duties or veterans were leaving where they were on a tour of duty and then going to a nearby hospital or a, a, a hospital slightly further afield in Europe and it was providing the perfect kind of storm for this bacteria to sort of spread spread through Europe and um, those areas. Absolutely. It was really very sad to read of the cases of veterans that had come back for with shrapnel, shrapnel wounds or, you know, um, had their leg amputated and lived through that, but ended up dying of Acinetobacter bomanii, aka Arachobacter. Of course. And it's it's not it's not alone, is it? It's it's part of a you know, a growing number of these once fairly innocuous bacteria that are now becoming resistant. That's right. You know, um, in 1961 was the first superbug um, was identified, and that was methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, which sounds like a big clunky word, but everybody has heard of MRSA. And it was yeah. actually identified in the UK. And uh, very quickly, that superbug MRSA spread all over the world. But since then, more and more uh, different bacteria have become resistant to multiple antibiotics. And that's when we call them a superbug, when they've acquired resistance to several different antibiotics. In fact, the word escape, if you spell it E-S-K-A-P-E, each one of those letters stands for a different superbug that is of global importance um, to human health. And TOMS was the A in the, in the escape acronym. I see. So how resistant to antibiotics was this Acinetobacter strain? Well, the Acinetobacter bomania was diagnosed in Germany, uh, and it was only partially sensitive to three antibiotics right off the top. It was resistant to 15. And um, these remaining antibiotics were only available intravenously, and they have very serious side effects. One of them is colistin, which is the last resort antibiotic. And um, yet, after he was medevaced back to San Diego, where we live, um, it was it became resistant to those last three antibiotics, despite infection control procedures. So you can imagine really? how nasty this organism really is. Wow! That's, yeah, it's such, in such a short space of time. And so, so you had this diagnosis, and then um, you 
I suppose did what was <laughs> probably would have come natural to you. But you started to do some research. Yes. Well, at first, um, the doctors who were caring for Tom in San Diego, they're our colleagues, and they said, you know, he's too weak for surgery. If we try to take this abscess out of his abdomen, um, unfortunately, because it's resistant to every antibiotic that we have now, he could become septic and die of, of septic shock. Right. And so they elected to put these drains or catheters in his abdomen to try to siphon off all that infected fluid. And so, uh, unfortunately, it kept spreading. And by the time, um, you know, February rolled around, he had five different drains, you know, like he looked like a pincushion, as well as a feeding tube. And unfortunately, one of those internal drains slipped and it poured all that infected fluid into his abdomen, into his bloodstream, and right in front of me, a doctor in a nurse, he went into septic shock. And I don't know if any of your listeners have ever seen this, but it's it's horrifying. What happens is your body is kind of overreacting to an invader that hits the bloodstream. And right away, the heart rate increases, the blood pressure drops, the person flushes, um, develops a fever, and um, starts panting, and and usually they um, are are starting to shake, um, and the shaking is called rigors, and it's so intense that in Tom's case, the, his the bed frame hit the wall, and this is all within like the span of two minutes, and so I was pretty stunned, and the doctor and nurse knew what was going on, and they rushed him back to the ICU, and they uh, had to put him on a ventilator and a medically induced coma, and it, you know, I was just stunned because we were actually supposed to get out of the hospital the very next day, and he wasn't going anywhere. In fact, now, because this organism was, you know, fully colonized him, he was dying a little bit each day after that. That's, that's something. I mean, I've heard about septic shock, but you, you got, I've never really considered what the physical, you know, instant reality of it of, of the the rigors and um yeah because it's it's essentially what they were trying to avoid the whole time wasn't it the, the the bacteria making its way into his bloodstream exactly so it was it was terrifying to see this because there was nothing else the doctors could do there was no antibiotics left and little by little he was wasting away and when i finally realized that that he was dying mm-hmm. i asked him when he was in a coma, and this time he was not in a medically induced coma, he was in a coma that he wasn't really waking up from. But some days his eyebrows would kind of, you know, wiggle and mm. or his fingers would, would try to reach out. And I thought, you know, the doctors are asking me if I want to start kidney dialysis and that's their way of asking if we want to keep him alive because he was already on what's considered life support. His his lungs were failing, so he was on a ventilator, and we see that with COVID these days. Mm. And he was on three different medications to keep his heart pumping. And so that the last organ system, the kidneys, um, are part of this trifecta. Once they start to fail, it's the end. So I, I wanted to ask Tom what he wanted, and I wasn't sure if he could hear me. But I said, honey, you know, I know that you're fighting really hard and you're tired. And if you want to let go, I'll understand. But I want to grow old with you. And if you want to live, please squeeze my hand and I'll try to figure out something to do to stop this thing. And I waited 
And he squeezed my hand. I mean, I was elated. But then I realized, oh, crap, you know, I'm not a medical doctor. What am I going to do? But I, I am a scientist, and I know how to do research. So I went home, and I, and I hit the internet. And the National Library of Medicine has a free search engine that's like Google Scholar on steroids. It's, it's really <laughs> open to the public. So even your grandmother can plunk in keywords like the name of a superbug and alternative treatments, and up pops scientific literature that's been vetted and is is based on you know real evidence and up popped a paper that had something buried in it called phage therapy wow so you you were confronted with this almost untreatable disease and so from there you hit the books i guess I think my background and training as a scientist was both a blessing and a curse um certainly i had the knowledge of of what was going on with this bacteria. And what I didn't know, I was able to read about and, and catch up because really I'd been focused on the HIV epidemic and the superbug crisis had really crept up on me. And that's one of the reasons that my husband and I decided to tell our story because if it crept up on me, it's crept up on the average person. But also I was kind of fragmented, to be honest. The, there was the wife me and there was the scientist me. And so you know, when, when I tell people about our story, some people say, well, like, didn't you realize that once they put him on a ventilator, he wouldn't be able to talk? It's like, well, rationally, you can realize that. But, you know, it hadn't really sunk in that I might never be able to hear my husband speak again. We may never be able to communicate. And that's what people with COVID are going through right now when it, when it comes to their families. It, it's it's really hitting people um, close to home these days. But for me, a lot of this was a shock because I knew just enough to get me into trouble about medicine. <laughs> yeah. And you, you're right. You, it's not, you know, when you're making these decisions, especially on behalf of someone, you know, the, 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 the kind of reality of it kind of has a habit of slamming into you before you can see it. Well, that's right. And there's a human element to this too, because my husband and I are second time around couple. Um, you know, uh, he has two older daughters that are my stepdaughters and I have, have always had a good relationship with them, but it's a different dynamic when, you know, I was the one who had the power of attorney who had to make the medical decisions. And yet I wanted to consult with them. I wanted their approval. And here I was mm -hmm. stumbling upon an experimental treatment, which was going to be crazy. That was direct arrived from sewage that I was going to, you know, try to save his life. And had, I had to convince him that this was the right thing to do. So, so yeah, that's a good, that's a good, good, good uh, place to come in. So, so, so you hit, you hit the books and you discovered phage to therapy. Um, so, I, I was, so did you, did you discover it in, in relation to, to uh, particularly uh, a senior bacter or, you know, how far back did you start discovering phage, you know, the story of phage therapy? Well, the first paper that I found was alternate treatments for multi-drug resistant acinetobacter pulmonia, which was the name of his superbug. And right. a couple of these treatments were not developed yet or they weren't, you know, possible like a vaccine. We don't have a vaccine for this. Um, or, um, you know, some kind of treatment that would be used on the skin. Well, he was fully colonized, so this was not going to work. But phage therapy, I knew what phages were. It's, it's short for the word bacteriophage, mm -hmm. which uh, is derived from the Greek word, um, which means to eat or to devour. And so it essentially means bacteria eater. And right. uh, 
bacteriophage had been discovered by a French-Canadian microbiologist named Felix de Harel in 1917. Mm-hmm. In fact, a British scientist um, named Twart observed phage activity a couple of years prior and had reported on it in The Lancet, but didn't know that that this was a virus. In fact, right. um, Felix de Harel didn't know it was a virus either, but he deduced it. And it wasn't until the electron microscope was developed in the 1940s uh, that Felix was vindicated because up until that point, people weren't really sure what they were looking at. They knew that something, uh, some kind of filterable agent that was smaller than a bacteria could pass through a pasteur filter and still kill bacteria. And so that's uh, that's how phage therapy came about. Um, phage were actually used to treat bacterial infections first in 1919 um, uh, in Paris, where there was an outbreak of dysentery among children. It was used in animals and had something of a heyday in the 1920s and 30s. In fact, Félix de Harel was, a, um, was the inspiration for the um, award-winning book uh, Aerosmith. Um, But then, of course, penicillin came on the scene, and uh, the wonderful history of Fleming and his colleagues identifying penicillin, but it really didn't come on the scene until World War II. In 1942, it it really became scaled up. And phage therapy was relegated to the back burner in the West because, of course, now we had this wonderful wonder drug, penicillin, and it can be used broad spectrum. So that means basically (laughs) you don't even have to diagnose what kind of bacteria it is. You can just, you know, (laughs) give somebody penicillin and it'll kill whatever's there a lot of the time. So, um, and of course, nowadays we know that broad spectrum antibiotics um, you know aren't necessarily a good thing if they kill all the friendly bacteria in our microbiome as well but mm. at the time um, the West was very excited about penicillin and in um, the former Soviet Union and parts of Eastern Europe it was uh, penicillin was not widely available and it was actually treated as a war secret um, by the allies. Um, And so uh, the the folks in the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe continue to use phage therapy and still to this day, they've amassed um, the the most clinical experience with it. Um, And yet it was became seen as like pinko commie science because the Russians (laughs) were using this treatment. And so it was Russian science. And so that geopolitical bias really put a cloud over phage therapy for decades. So how how did you go from there? And how did you end up at an actual treatment? Yes. Uh, well, in, in fact, it, it's had several false starts. There's been interest in phage therapy, but there was different um, barriers that were encountered. And so... Um, my husband's case, because ultimately we were able to source phages with the help of a global village of phage researchers and the U.S. Navy. It was really a, a spectacular effort of, of total strangers that came together to save the life of, of one man. Um, <laughs> my husband's case really has been described as the case that brought phage therapy back to the West. So so, so just to uh, rewind a little bit there, so so, so you'd you'd found that this this there was this potential phage therapy um, literature out there, and that you know chances were out there there were some kind of you know viral uh, viruses that could you know you could give your husband and it if if there was any luck uh, it could treat him. How did you go about 
finding these and, and sourcing them and, um, you know, ending up with an actual treatment? Well, when I realized that these bacteriophage, which I had learned about in my microbiology class back in like 1986, but that they'd actually been used to treat people and could cure people of bacterial infections, I got very excited. But then I first realized that my hopes were um, somewhat limited because this was considered experimental. The FDA, um, the Food and Drug Administration in the United States, has not licensed phage therapy because clinical trials haven't been done to show that it's efficacious compared to antibiotics. So, um, you know, it was it was looking like uh, an insurmountable task. But I didn't want to give up. Um, I wrote Chip Schooley, who was then the head of infectious diseases at the University of California, San Diego, where Tom was being treated. He was a friend of ours and had been involved in the case from the beginning. And I said, Chip, I know we're going to lose Tom unless something drastic is done to turn him around. What do you think about phage therapy? And uh, he wrote me right back and he said, what an interesting and intriguing idea. If you can find phage that can match his bacterial isolate, I'll call the FDA and get permission to use it on a compassionate basis. Um, and that's um, an emergency investigational new drug status, which is used when there's an experimental treatment that that they don't have data for. Um, and right. so then, of course, I, I was very excited again, but I was uh, daunted by this seemingly impossible task because the more I learned about phage, the stranger it, the whole idea got. Um, essentially, phage are the oldest and most populous organism on the planet. Um, there's 10 million trillion trillion, that's 10 to the power of 31 phages that are estimated to be out there. And they, they have to match to the bacteria that, that you want to kill. So it isn't mm -hmm. like any phage can kill any bacteria. It has to be a specific kind. So, because mm. they have these receptors that they attach to. And in the case of Acinetobacter bulmanii, the superbug that Tom had, um, it, it has to match not just the genus and the species of the bacteria, but the exact isolate. So Tom's Acinetobacter bulmanii is like, oh my God, how are oh, we right. ever going to find these phages? <laughs> but I didn't want to give up. I went to the internet again and I, I made a list of all of the researchers I could find in the United States anyway that were studying this superbug and phage. And it was a mighty short list. And I wrote them cold. They were total strangers. This isn't my field. I sent them um, a picture of Tom lying in a coma with a t-shirt draped over him that said, I survived Arachobacter that our student uh, had given us. And um, our story, and within 24 hours, I heard back from Dr. Ryland Young at Texas A&M University who offered to help. <laughs> and so you were on the hunt for these phages and then if i'm if i'm right here you found them in a uh in a place that might uh probably probably made explaining what you're doing to friends and relatives a little bit uh tricky well you know it it almost seemed like a headline that you'd see on the daily mail or something because <laughs> um phages are found in places where you find a lot of bacteria so mm -hmm. if you can just think for a minute, where would you find a lot of bacteria? Well, um, a great place to find them is sewage. Uh, 
Um, and because that's where the perfect predator is uh, to kill these bacteria, the phage. So um, when I talked to Dr. Young, he said, you know, do you have any boots or, or that have soil on them from where, where you oh. were in Egypt? And, and he was asking because he would want samples of the soil from the boots. And I said, um, no. He goes, well, he says, I guess we'll have to rely on our environmental samples here at Texas. And he says, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? And I, so essentially he was talking about sewage and barnyard waste. And, you know, people have found phages on your kitchen sponges. But it isn't just these gnarly places. I mean, our bodies are just like, you know, swimming in phage. Literally, there's 30 billion phages that are thought to move in and out of our bodies every day. So they're not something foreign. It's just that we yeah. hadn't had, you know, the science and the tools to be able to study them until, um, you know, at least therapeutically until fairly recently. So when you, so when you had um, acquired uh, these samples, um, how, how, how certain were you that you had isolated phages that were going to be able to treat um, the acidiobacter? Well, um, the, the group at Texas A&M University basically turned their lab into a command center. And so they were looking for phages from, you know, these crazy sources. Um, but they also reached out to the phage community internationally and to see if people are, had already isolated phage that were active against Acinetobacter bomanii. And we had offers uh, from, you know, Belgium and Switzerland and India. I mean, it was really amazing. And um, yet we, we didn't need to rely on a lot of these international sources because the Texas lab found four phages within about a week um, that really did kill Tom's bacterial isolate. We sent them a sample, they, they cultured it, and then they were able to, you know, essentially put drops of the sewage and other suspension on the Petri dishes and incubate it. Mm -hmm. And it com if it comes back 24 to 48 hours with holes essentially looking like Swiss cheese in the plates, then even though you can't see phage with your naked eye, they're a hundred times smaller than bacteria. You can see that they've been at work. They've gobbled up the bacterial colony and left a hole there. So you get excited because you know that you've got a phage that matches that bacterial isolate and you pluck it out and you add more bacteria in, in a suspension and then you grow it up and then you have to purify it. And that can be a bit of the tricky part. That certainly was in Tom's case that took more time than anything else. But um, the Texas team were fantastic. Um, and as well, the U.S. Navy had phages like, active against Acinetobacter bomanii, and they made a cocktail for Tom. So now we had two cocktails. And from my first email to the day we were ready to treat him with phage therapy, it was three weeks. I mean, compare that to wow. an antibiotic that takes 10 to 15 years to develop and a billion-dollar price tag or more. There's no comparison. No. And so... You then get to the point where you've got a treatment and, and you know, although you were confident in the science, it, it was no, by no means a, a sort of a certain thing, was it? Well, you're right, because Tom was fully colonized with this superbug. So Dr. Schooley, uh, who had been, you know, appointed as the protocol chair because he's the doctor and, you know, somebody had to take responsibility for this experimental treatment. And he really put his, his reputation on the line. It was very scary. Um, he really deduced after talking to experts in the field that we would need to treat Tom intravenously. 
And that was seen as somewhat of an innovation. It has been done before, but even the folks in the former Soviet Union and and Eastern Europe that have been using phage therapy for decades typically don't inject billions of phages into somebody to cure them from their superbug. They might use it topically or a nebulizer where they're breathed in or even as a suppository. But to inject a billion phages per dose into somebody to try to kill them of their superbug, I mean, if we didn't purify the suspension enough, he could die of septic shock. And we all know what that looks like. Yeah. (laughs) Well, fortunately, that didn't happen. So quite the opposite. In fact, Tom recovered. What, What was that like? Well, it was really a dramatic moment. I mean, when we injected the phages into Tom's bloodstream, nobody really knew if this was going to cure him or kill him. But we did know that if we didn't do something, that he was going to die anyway. And I was told that they expected him to die within a couple of hours. I mean, I literally signed the consent form for kidney dialysis the day that we started phage therapy. And, And yet, you know, Three days after we started injecting the phage into his bloodstream, he lifted his head off the pillow, opened his eyes, and kissed his daughter's hand. It was just fantastic. Exceptionally rapid. Um, Yes. I mean, he did have uh, some bumps in the road after that. Um, I mean, he had lost 100 pounds and all of his muscle mass. And because he'd been on a ventilator for a while uh, and in a coma for two months, he had to learn how to you know, swallow again, to talk, uh, to sit, to stand, everything. I mean, the the rehab was intensive. But nevertheless, um, he was on phage therapy for about a month. He cleared the bacterial infection within three months. He got out of the hospital. He, um, you know, nowadays he goes for a walk um, three and a half miles every day. Um, He takes out the garbage every time I ask him. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to ask. Do you, does that does that drop into your arguments now? When you need uh, you need something to tilt your way. Like, well, I did save your life. Well, you know, we you have to have a sense of humor about this. I mean, I can literally tell my husband that he's full of, uh, you know. <laughs> this is this is clearly uh, you know an incredible story that, that I'm sure many could relate to and understand, but. But it was more than just that, wasn't it? It, it? This was a scientific moment. The, this process and, and what you went through advanced the field by some way. I mean, just for, for a start, just the delivery method that, that was used uh, for this treatment was new. Yes. I mean, the intravenous delivery of the phages was certainly an innovation in this case, especially for the United States, which really had no experience doing anything like this. There certainly wasn't anything documented in the literature about how to do this. I mean, the dose, we just basically, you know, guessed based on his weight. Um, and um, But the the other aspect is that, that the phages were personalized for him. So it was really taking personalized medicine, um, at, you know, to a new level. And the idea that you could inject phage, like a billion phages per dose, and for the scientists out there, that's 10 to the 9 PFU per mil. Um, then, and we did this every two hours. Um, it really, it we, we have not seen any negative side effects of this at all. And we, we subsequently went on to treat other people with phage therapy. In fact, when Tom was still in the hospital, 
a two-year-old child was treated with phage therapy intravenously based on the protocol that was used in Tom's case. And that's when we both broke down in tears and realized, you know what, this is bigger than us. You know, maybe this is the reason we're on the planet, you know, and, and, and you just realize that total strangers stepped up to save the life of one man. I mean, it really puts the word kind in humankind. And at a time when there's so much negativity in the world, and it just, um, I can't even tell you how grateful we are because we realized that we were privileged. If most of the people who are dying of superbug infections live in developing countries, and yet because of this, you know, the the training that I'd had and the 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 fact that we we're based at a world-class university and we were able to use connections to have people help us. Um, most people don't have that. And that's why we decided to, to tell our story and to write our book, The Perfect Predator, um, because we were really caught off guard by the superbug crisis, me even mm-hmm. as a scientist. And so, um, and, and yet a hundred-year-old forgotten cure has been there all along and has been buried, at, at least in the West. So we decided that it needs its fair shake. It needs to be evaluated in clinical trials and when and yes. so because it was there it didn't it didn't just sort of um you know it didn't it didn't end there did it there was also a british case recently um isabel howway who was a teenager who um i believe she she even she had a obviously not not similar story but she had a super uh, an infection by a superbug and she she got in touch didn't she to or her family did uh, for treatment is that right Yes, Isabel's case is even more spectacular than Tom's in many ways. Um, At the time, um, Isabel, who has cystic fibrosis, had had a double lung transplant and her new lungs were being attacked by a a terrible pathogen called Mycobacterium obsessus. Um, Listeners might be familiar with Mycobacterium tuberculosis, a cousin um, to this uh, superbug, which causes tuberculosis. That's the biggest bacterial killer in the world, kills almost Mm -hmm. 2 million people every single year. And, and mycobacterium obsessus is, is very difficult to treat. She was not responding to antibiotics. In fact, she was in hospice. And her mom heard about Tom's case, contacted Isabel's doctor. Isabel's doctor reached out. And um, Dr. Schooley, who treated Tom, also got involved. And we had been in touch with a researcher at the University of Pittsburgh who essentially has developed a, a course where University freshmen learn how to isolate phage, just like phage were used in Tom's case from sewage, et cetera. And if they find new phage, they get to name it. It goes into a database. There's a big phage library, all like like tens thousand phages that are active against mycobacterium. But nobody had ever thought about their therapeutic potential until Isabel's case. Well, when Dr. Hatful, who's at the University of of Pittsburgh, in fact, he's a Brit as well, um, when he was approached to see if if he had any phages in this giant phage library that were active against Isabel's case, he said, sure, I'll look. And he found one that was perfect. I mean, it, it would kill her organism. It was actually sourced from a rotting aubergine in South Africa by a student there, if you can believe that. <laughs> 
That's remarkable. But the other two phages he found, and you want to have a phage cocktail when you treat people with phage Mm -hmm. therapy because the bacteria can become resistant to the phage very quickly if you only have one. So he Mm -hmm. knew he needed more. But they were what we call in our book the the lazy kind of phages that enter the bacterial cell and instead of killing it after multiplying, they hit the snooze button and uh, they don't really do anything. Um, and they can carry antibiotic resistance genes or toxin genes. So you really don't want to use these for phage therapy if you don't have to. So mm-hmm. what Dr. Hatful did is he clipped out a gene that made it um, the sleepy kind. And it, he forced it to become the lytic or phage rage kind, as I like to think of it. <laughs> and so now we all of a sudden had the first genetically modified phage cocktail. And, of course, it was going to be proposed to be used for Isabel in the UK. And this was the first time ever that a genetically modified phage cocktail would be used to treat a human. And so we had to convince the UK government that this was a good thing, that it wasn't a GMO. And they debated about this and realized, okay, well, I guess you took away a gene. You didn't add a gene, so it's not a GMO. So, yes, we'll let you go ahead. Well, oh, my God. It was a big, big debate. And also, we had to find the right courier to take it across because people thought, oh, are we going to, you know, contaminate the postal service and things like that. And anyway, <laughs> it, was just, it was the same kind of issues came up in Tom's case too. But no, that doesn't happen. Phages are everywhere in our environment. You don't have to worry about that you're, unless you're a giant bacterium, of course, then you're in big <laughs> trouble. Yeah. But anyway, Isabel received phage therapy intravenously based on Tom's case. And even though she was literally was at death's door, the doctor had given her a 1% chance of living. She left the hospital within a week. Wow. That was just, and now this has ushered in a new era where it's possible to use genetically modified or even synthetic phage to treat superbug infections. And so biotech and pharmas are getting very excited about this because they're easier right. to patent this way. So, so this, this is a story that plays out, as you've, you've, you've highlighted, it plays out all over the world all the time. People, well, people can just get bacterial infections, but often it's after some other injury or surgery. So my, my next question is how, how viable is this to scale up to the kind of magnitude that is clearly uh, needed in the future? Well, we've got some work to do before we can scale phage therapy up, um, you know, to the global level that we need to. Um, First, we need clinical trials to show that it can stand up to antibiotics and and is safe. Um, And then we need a giant phage library, bigger than the one that Dr. Hatful has has developed because his is available only for mycobacterium. And we know that there are multiple bacteria out there that that are superbugs. So if you imagine having a giant library of of superbugs and and it's matched to a a giant library of phage and it's ever expanding because literally these two creatures are dueling it out um, on an ongoing basis. So you need to keep up with evolution. But it's possible to do because remember, there's 10 million trillion trillion phages on the planet. So it's all a, a matter of finding the perfect predators for each one. Mm-hmm. isolating them, purifying them, sequencing them, and cataloging them and making them available. So we have the first dedicated phage therapy center in North America based at UC San Diego, beginning with Tom's case and all the other cases we've treated in the last several years. 
And mm-hmm. it's called the Center for Innovative Phage Applications and Therapeutics. And um, we collaborate with labs and companies all over the world to source phages for patients. But we, we really need to develop this library because you can't just right. go to sewage every time somebody's <laughs> got an infection. I mean, literally, that's what we did for Tom and we, we were lucky. But yeah. if you have a phage library that's all ready to go, you can honestly, you can get phages ready to match someone's superbug infection within a day or two or even faster if we can um, have rapid diagnostics to identify the bacterial pathogen right off the bat. And those are coming in along the pipeline too. So those are the things that we need to do next. And so, and you've just touched on something that, that I suppose that, that, that is the inherent appeal of phage therapy as well as that, you know, um, the, even if the, the bacteria uh, comes up as resistant, chances are, there is there there is going to be something out there in the natural kingdom that has specialized to predate on the bacteria that you're trying to isolate even if the one that you know say say you find this works in one case maybe a year down the line it stops working chances are there could be a new one out there is that is that accurate that's right. And even in Tom's case, the bacteria did become resistant to the phages. That was one of the criticisms of phage right. therapy they, that people said, oh, it's no better than antibiotics because the bacteria can become resistant to the phage. Well, of course, bacteria are going to become resistant to anything that we throw at them. But you can generate a second generation phage cocktail within a, a couple of days if you have a large enough phage library. And we were lucky to do that. Right. Or you can just take a, um, a, a phage and, and manipulate it, um, you know, using CRISPR-Cas um, gene editing right. techniques to, you know, optimize the phage lifestyle to, to be a better killer. Right. Brilliant. And so just in case someone is listening who might have had a similar story to yours, what what would you suggest they do if they, um, you know, had, had knew or had somebody who had um, experienced an infection via a superbug that was antibiotic resistant? Well, our center, IPATH, is um, a nonprofit, and we have uh, been involved with cases all over the world. We're not the only phage center now. Of course, mm-hmm. uh, there's still um, a phage therapy center in the Republic of Georgia. There's one in Poland that have existed for decades. There's one in Belgium. There's other phage centers popping up. Ours, um, if we can help you, um, you can contact us at ipath at ucsd.edu. And more on our story and the book we wrote about it is at theperfectpredator.com where there's a lot of different resources and a discussion guide as well. That was Professor Stephanie Strathdever telling the story of how she was able to save her husband's life from a superbug. To discover more about her groundbreaking work in phage therapy and the journey she and her husband went on, do check out their book, the Perfect Predator. This interview was prompted by the New Year issue of BBC Science Focus magazine, which is on sale now. Inside, we take a tour of the scientific ideas that we think will play a part in the national conversation in 2021. As well as taking a look at bacteriophages, we take a close look at rewilding, swarm spacecraft, virtual reality therapy, and much more. Thank you for listening. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. 
Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.